When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daney. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Welcome back to the big interview. You know already that I'm Graham Hunter. We wanted to have Brad Friedel on our series because he's bright, he's interesting, he's distinctive, he's an extremely good goalkeeper and we were all intrigued by the mystery of how is it feasible not to play until late in age but to play and get better every year. Across this two-part interview, because Brad was very generous with his time, speaking to us from a lovely clapperboard house in Massachusetts, not where he lives now, but he is based back home in the States. We would cover things like what it's actually like to be an Ohioan and related to bootleggers. You don't know what bootleggers are? Listen and you'll find out. It's brilliant. Across the piece, we're going to be speaking about life in England, adapting to what it's like as an outsider to make your way as a culturally curious man. A curiosity which... Brad also assuaged playing in Turkey. There are some fabulous stories about his time with Graham Souness for Galatasaray. Coming down the line, so enjoy this and come back, please. You won't have heard a better description from a goalkeeper about what it's like to lose a goal against a man who you know everything he's going to do, but still the ball goes past you. This is Brad Friedel on The Big Interview. It's an absolute corker. ever-growing um, paper trail that is the Joyful Series Big Interview. Listeners, welcome back. We've got uh, a treat today because I'm sitting looking at uh, one of the great US sportsmen of all time. Sportsmen, not just soccer players of all time. I'm sitting looking at uh, a guy of smart brains and big character. And we're about to spend an extended period of time in his company, Brad Friedel. Welcome to the big interview. Thank you for making time in your in your Massachusetts timetable. I think we've just established. Have I got the right state for you? Yeah, I'm in Boston right now. I, I currently live in Miami, but I'm up in uh, up in Boston today doing this. But you wish you were in North London or in Birmingham or maybe out down by the Mersey or uh, actually North London. Yeah, I love the UK. Anywhere in the UK, to be honest with you. Well, it's a starting place, Brad, because. You've been well briefed, one thank you, um, but you've been well briefed about the fact that this might seem idiosyncratic or even eccentric at times. But when I was growing up in Aberdeen, which is in the cold northeast of Scotland, um, there was a programme on television called Minder, 
and it was a it was I don't know if you've ever seen it or whatever, but it was a guy who was a minder for a kind of not crooked but edge of the law businessman. It was deeply funny, and it was based in nineteen seventies London, and it was the follow up to a program called The Sweeney, which was about the Flying Squad in London in the seventies, and it was raucous and it was full of London wit, but it was full of accents and it was full of London locations and sitting there as a teenager I have no embarrassment at saying that my goal to move to live and work in London which I did eventually and spent five six years there before moving to Barcelona 20 years ago was uh, I have to relive minder I have to hear those accents I have to hear those white boys and I want to put you back to the nine-year-old Brad because I'm going to ask you and talk to you at more length about your, your upbringing in a minute. But nine-year-old Brad Friedel finds himself on, I quote, a rickety London underground train heading to Wembley. And you detail what you find there for the first time. And you're living a minder script. Because there's geezers, there's beer, there's noise. You get to the stadium, it's your tale, you'll tell it. But there's a little bit of violence. There's cops charging around. Will you, because I think it's it's a central part of the theme of you realising dreams in your life, will you take us back to what was nine-year-old Brad doing in London and, and paint your own picture of what it was like that day? I was on a just a family vacation around Europe with um, with my mom, my dad and my sister. And uh, and I believe at times uh, my uh, my mom's uh, mom and dad you know, joined us in various in various cities. And uh, I, I play. I grew up playing every sport, um, but I really, I really love football. You know, ice hockey and football were my two, my, my two loves, and not American football. We're going we're proper, proper football. And, uh, and my dad, um, I don't know how he got the got tickets, but he got tickets to a, the Charity Shield. I think, um, I think it was the Charity Shield. It was Liverpool against West Ham, I believe. And uh, that was the day that I became a Liverpool supporter. That's, you know, because growing up in Cleveland, we only we had a little bit of Liverpool on, t- uh, on TV and we had um, a bit of Bayern Munich on TV, but, you know, once a week type of stuff. Um, those two very successful clubs, obviously, at the time, um, but not not a lot. You know, so there, you know, I had to wait, you know, to get my soccer digest once a month kind of thing. You know, it was uh, it was one of one of those uh, one of those times. You know, you were where, you know, the soccer digest is three days is going to come, and then you could go through all the monthly results and that. You just you just didn't have a you just didn't have a lot of a paper trail. No computers, obviously, in the house. It wasn't Google. We didn't have, you know you couldn't get results readily. So, anyways, I, I we we roll up to the game. Um, my dad tells me, you know, I'm going to take you to a game. Okay. You know, I'd been to Cleveland Browns games. I've been to Cleveland Indians games. I've been to Cleveland Cavaliers games. Figured it's going to be similar. <laughs> no way. Man. It's, it's the old Wembley, and it is manic. I mean, you know that the horses were enormous. I was only, you know, I was only a young boy at the time. The horses were enormous, and and not too many times in the states that I seen police men and women on horses. You know, and and like looking around and the fans and the singing. Uh, we we don't have that in the United States. You know, you don't. Every now and again, there's a chant and a big roar, but like on the way outside stadiums into the grounds, you don't have droves of supporters and different supporters sections and coming from various areas of the globe uh, or and the country all together and coming in and singing their own songs and and it was just it was just mesmerizing. There, there really was, and I look around, but I tell my dad. I mean, in, in the midst of all this chaos. Uh, um, I tell my dad, I was like, I, I got to go to the toilet. We wait, we wait in the queue. And, I mean, and, and you're, you're back then, you know, that the, the uh, and plus the drinking culture in the UK, just in general, you know, we, there weren't, a, there was a lot of, a lot of police presence, but you know, most, most everyone there was pissed. We go in there and somehow, some way, which I know shouldn't have happened, there's West Ham supporters and Liverpool supporters in the Lou at the time. And not not many, but there was one or two, and and I can't remember who did what on who, but one urinated on another in, in the stall, like not far from me, and a fight broke out, and the police come charging in, and my dad and I had finished my dad like swoops me up, you know, and I could see in his face he's contemplating, do we stay or do we go? <laughs> 
we obviously stayed and and it it was uh it was remarkable i think that the thing that i take away from it the most is the and i'll just use the word culture um the culture over in the united states is more of a i'm buying my ticket and now you and when i when i say you the whole club players the club the cheerleaders the band whatever entertain me now that that's the that's the american mentality i'll cheer for you when you when you entertain me whereas there the game hadn't even kicked off and the the culture is to back and support your club no matter no matter what and even in the down times when when uh, when fans are disgruntled and upset what, there's still a great atmosphere around it might be a little bit of a negative atmosphere, but it's still an atmosphere, and they want what's best for the the club, and they want to win. Um, it, so it, it was such a difference, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it, and that and it's it's probably why I love football so much because in, in American sports, which I like as well. Don't get me wrong; I'm not like bashing American sports, but it's a lot stop, start, stop, start, and coaches get together and give you a play, and you go and do it again. Whereas football. You have a system, you have a style, but so many things happen in a game. It's just, it's far more fluid and you can't call a timeout and say, hey, do this. You know, every now and again, you get instruction, but you know, you got to figure it out on your own. And I like that about it on both, on both sides. From nine until now, whatever you are, 39, just turning 40, what have you been able to deduce about that British culture that you witnessed then and you you fueled as as a really beloved player because it feels to me some of our tribalism once the club's in there it's in there for life as if it was a stamp on your heart forever and the singing on the way to the games it feels to me part of our I don't know if it's a part of our military culture in Britain I don't know if it's part of the, the class structure in Britain where those who maybe don't across the years not just across your life those who don't have much uh, need something to elevate their lives and therefore they'll commit to it and sing about it and f- look at it like a battle. What, what, how did you, how have you worked out why we're like what we're like? I put it more down to allegiances in a, in a sense. Um, where, and, and this is something that I, I, I love the most about living, not living in, uh, in the UK, in, in, in England, not... Um, not uh, not playing football, but living. I, I every com- little community that I lived in, it's like the pub the pub culture. I don't mean going and getting pissed culture. It's I, I tell I tell my American friends this. If you're ever in England, if you're ever like locked out of your home or you need help with something or whatever, you can walk down to your local pub, see a hundred friendly faces. And almost every single one of them would drop everything to help you out with what you need at the time. It's in, and why? Well, because I lived in Thaden Boys, and that's what people in Thaden Boys do for people in Thaden Boys. Like it, it's it's like that. Now, would they help someone that was that was in uh, in, in a town over? I don't know. Maybe not. You know, but it. But if you're there, I think these allegiances form. And, and I, I don't know if you go back, um, if you go back in time, if it had to do with the class system, it could have, it, it absolutely could. But like, once you're a, a Tottenham supporter, you're a Tottenham supporter. If you're a West Ham supporter, you're a West Ham supporter. And you, you might live right here and right here, but you know, right next to each other, but you're, that's it. And if West Ham relegates, they relegate and you're still a West Ham supporter. Um, if they go down to league one, you're still a West Ham supporter. You know, you still have the tattoo. You'll still have it in your blood. You know, that's it. Um, look at look at Man City's uh, history, and that just, just name that just because I was living in Manchester at the time that they were doing the you know the the up down up down 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 down, and then boom, here here we are today. It will the and most of the Man City supporters when I lived in Man at Manchester were local because of where the club was at, Man United was this this global this global uh, uh, steam train rolling every rolling everywhere people flew in from everywhere generally speaking 
Man City was the the locals, you know, and 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 I just think all these like allegiances form. Um, I I got the sense, especially in the north of England, um, there weren't a lot of travelers, and I don't mean traveling to away game. I just mean in in their in their life, you know, Spain every now and again, Portugal every now and again, real homebodies. Like they 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 like. You know they they like waking up and having their cup of tea. They they like uh, going and doing the bowls. They like having their you know they they get set in a life you know and where wait wait it's five o'clock I got to be at the pub you, you know it's it's and and they di- they didn't really go branch out too too much. London completely different. Now I lived outside of London uh, in in Essex, but um, in in Thayton Boys as I had said uh, and. Just Thayden boys had a very, um, not the mentality of the people, but the area had a very northern feel to it um, with the way that it was set up in the pubs and the, the, the miniature Tesco and the, you know, the small, the small little areas, were, but and everyone sort of knew everybody. Um, but the cosmopolitan nature of London is, is outstanding. I, I, I got to say it's my favorite city on, on the planet. It, it, it was magnificent just with everything it had to offer while also being able to live in the countryside. Well, it's a stunning place that I enjoyed and I miss to this day, and I particularly miss the Thames, um, which just enchants me. And part of the message of this podcast is going to be to Antonio Conte and to Daniel Levy to, to get you back where you belong. But I need to turn that cultural analysis on its head. And if you'll tolerate me, because it's only if this interests you, but it does interest me, two things about where you, where you grow up which predominantly I think is is Bay Village, but what what over your life, um, because you're a very cosmopolitan, multicultural man, um, what over your life has being an Ohioan done for you? What did it teach you? What has stayed with you about being an Ohioan? And I and I need also to know if 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 Lake Erie ha- had has a has had a big influence on you simply because I'm obsessed by bodies of water. I have to live near the sea or a river. I cannot, will not ever live in a landlocked place. And the pool, the, the way that lochs, lakes, the sea, big rivers pull me, the relationship wolves are supposed to have with, with the moon. That's me and water. Those are my two questions. Being an Ohioan and Lake Erie. All right, let's do uh, Lake Erie first because that's, that's a shorter, it's a shorter response. Um, but... I also like living on the water, near water. Um, Lake Erie is like an ocean. Uh, you know, the Great Lakes are enormous. So, uh, you know, I never, uh, if I was down in uh, Florida visiting my grandparents growing up in Naples and I looked out at, they lived over on the um, on the west side of, west coast of Florida. So if I'm looking over at the Gulf of Mexico, it looked the exact same as, as Lake Erie. Not the beach. So don't, you know, the listener don't, you know, don't say the beach is the same. That's not true. But the water looked the exact same. The The city of Cleveland, if you go back, it has its history of prohibition uh, to it. It's a steel steel industry, steel town. Um, you, you know, the the, uh, the mafia set up shop at Terminal Tower. Um, very safe place back, back then because it was uh, mafia run. Uh, a little anecdote: Elliot Ness from the film Untouchables. He lived in Bay. He lived in Bay Village for a short time because it's not far, not far from from where he probably had to had to try to stop a few people in um, in Cleveland. Because Lake Erie was a place you could run. The prohibition, for those who don't remember, is when America somehow banned all alcohol, but bootleg alcohol would have come across Lake Erie from Canada. Correct. And and they and they could have they could have brought it in and when they did they brought it in in uh, droves and I, I guess I'm glad I answered the, that part of the question first with Lake Erie because um, Cleveland's not a um, not a soft town to live in um, I would equate it to Newcastle it's um, there's four seasons and two of them are really nice weather and two of them are brutal you know like minus thirty degree days and the snow you know I remember. Um, I grew up in the great, I think, blizzard of 1978, you know, where the snow was above uh, the rooftop of a two-story home. I, you know, if you Google photos, it's it, remarkable. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, when it, just another little anecdote. When I trained in, the, when, even when I was at Blackburn and the weather was atrocious, 
I, I usually had a short sleeve shirt on. Wear one of those Under Armour things underneath just so I didn't cut up my arms. But people used to look at me and say, Brad, you're mental. And no, I come from Cleveland. Like, this is nothing compared to the cold of Cleveland. You know, and so it uh, growing up in, so Bay Village is softer than Cleveland, but, um, but I grew up in sports and you play everywhere and it's, it's a hard town. So when I was growing up and you just get to the age to go to the bars and play pool and all that, usually a fight every night. I, I never really minded being around it. You get your wits about you a little bit. By, by no means was I a, a big fist thrower, but it, you, it, didn't phase, it didn't phase me. You go to a Cleveland Browns game, 100% there's going to be a fight. It was a hardened place to live, but Bay Village was soft. Yeah. It was sheltered. Um, you're talking about me being multicultural, and you're right, I, I am. Um, but I also grew up around, and dare I say it, all white people, like in my school. Yeah. In, and looking at my, my mom was and still is an inner city teacher in Cleveland. And I attribute my upbringing and the way that I view people and life and the world on my mom and dad. But also the fact that at a really young age, I was playing sports. And I played a lot of basketball where I would be the only white guy there. You know, and I, and, and I, you know, and I got to see and appreciate people for who they are. Not what they look like, not what their religion is, not any, any, any of the garbage that goes on in the world today. Or the world even back then, you know, but that goes on. Um, so I, I think I was, I was lucky as well that I was gifted in sports to be able to be given those opportunities. You know, I was traveling from a young age, um, you know, and then my mom and dad would drive me where, you know, fly me, drive me wherever. And, and they didn't have a lot of money. You know, they, they would give everything to my sister and myself to try to have us do our activities. Um, you know, and that's really where, I, where my, my mind was able to expand, it, to, to be honest with you. Because if, if I was just in Bay Village and going back to how I saw like the, the Northern English, if you don't get to see and experience things from outside, it's very different to have a different view of life. And, and we're generally, you know, we talk about race, kick racism out of football. What can athletes do? What can soccer do? What can, well, we can do a little bit. And I, and I sincerely mean that it's a little bit because most all of that education is done inside your house you know, or with your real tight, close friends. So, you know, you're not, you're not born a racist. You're, you're taught it. There's three sections of Ohio, really. You have your Cleveland, which is, which is on Lake Erie. Like in the certain parts, it's hard. A lot of good athletes, a lot of good business men and women. Um, more of an East Coast feel to it than Midwest. Then you go to Columbus and it is, it's now, a bit more cosmopolitan, but when I was growing up, um, it, it very much uh, cornfields, very midwestern feel to it. Um, one little river, not much water, and then you have Cincinnati, which is right on the border of Kentucky. And the reason I'm telling you this because there's another another thing that molded my life is one of the ends of the Underground Railroad during the Civil War was Oberlin, which is right by which is right by Cleveland. When you got into Oberlin city limits, you were free. You could go to school, you could work, whatever. So I grew up around that, that mindset, the liberal. It's one of, if you Googled Oberlin, Oberlin College, it's, I think it's still deemed today as the most liberal, liberal or one of the most liberal colleges in the United States, probably in, in the world. And so I, I used to play, they had a, uh, outdoor ice hockey rink. I used to go out there all the time. It was probably about 20 minute drive from my house. Um, you know, so I was also raised in, in knowing that. So it was in no, no, like a big epiphany. It was just, it just was what it was. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, I can't believe it or I can believe it. It was just, it, it's just how it was. So I, I, again, I consider myself really lucky, like growing up around mainly all white people, but then having the sports, having, having, uh, the history of what, it, of what Cleveland was having the history during the prohibition, learning about 
my grandfather actually did some stuff during Prohibition. And so the stories that I had. This is not a euphemism free uh, podcast, but you can't dangle did some stuff and stories. I'd love to have one granddad story. Oh, yeah. One granddad story was this. So he, he would tell me. So he, he worked a, a multitude of, of jobs. You know, he would, he would, um, he was a handyman. Like it could do things, but he would also, but he was very well respected. Um, and, and he, he grew up at a time where he needed to be hard. So he yeah. could, he could look after himself, of course. And like, yeah. if you just shook his hands alone, thick and, <laughs> and leathered and they never told me like what, what he delivered, but he had delivered something for not, not the police side of town. In, in Cleveland. And um, there were speakeasies all over the place. Okay? And so there was a well-known speakeasy. Um, well, I mean, when I was growing up, obviously, you could drink alcohol. But and they turned it into a restaurant. But, um, but it, the place was called White Oak. And um, there was a separate building that was now non-attached from the new restaurant. And they kept it there because of the history of it. And you can still see the door. And my grandmother, when my grandfather passed away, my grandmother took me there. And he said, you see this door right here? And I said, yeah. She goes, this is where, uh, this is where Howard was his name. This is where Howard and I used to come to drink during Prohibition. I went, I went, how? And they said, well, do you notice on the front, it's just brick. And I said, yeah. I said, yeah. She said, well, if you go around the side, and I followed her, we used to knock on this door, and the little thing would slide, and it's the speakeasy. And they would either see us, um, but Howard had to give them a, a number or a code. I was never allowed to hear it. I was always, I was always stood back. This is your grandmother. This is your grandmother had to stand back. Yeah. And, and and often, they, they, in case there was a problem, they'd all say, you know, I want a cup of coffee or whatever. It was all coded, all hidden, because it was fully illegal to drink. The speakeasies got raided by Elliot Ness's of this world, maybe Elliot Ness's deputies, etc. What a culture. What an amazing culture. Before the rest of this big interview... I'd like to tell you that our entire archive of audio and video content is now on our new YouTube channel. We've begun filming all of our interviews, and there are already loads of clips with guests, including Rio Ferdinand, Connor Cody, Brendan Rogers, and Jamie Carragher, plus full interviews for you to watch and to share. Please do share with friends. Go to YouTube and search Graham Hunter or click on the link in the show notes to this episode and become a subscriber. I honestly think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
Elliot Ness wasn't a big part of um, Bay Village and growing up, you know, and I, I'm not even sure like how big he was on the force in Cleveland. I, I have no idea. I don't know if the, the film The Untouchables embellished things um, or, you know, blew it up with Elliot Ness per se. I'm not sure. But I do know that he had uh, he had the uh, the house on uh, Lake Road in, in Bay Village. And then the other thing in Bay Village that happened that molded who we were was the Sam Shepard case. Yeah, you Mid-50s, I guess. Murder case? Murdered his wife, I believe. So whenever you were in, in law school or doing like any kind of pre-law or anything like that in high school and then going into your universities, the Sam Shepard case was big. Now, I, I didn't go into law, so I don't, I don't know why. But something happened and it comes up, it came up almost every year from the time I was like fifth grade up until I graduated. So like seven straight years there would be at least like a week of something on the Sam Shepard case in school. And you would, you would see his house. There's a plaque on it. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. It's a beautiful answer that I hope will help people understand you and your, your later strength and your decisions and your character. And maybe it'll encourage some people to go visit Ohio. I know I will. I know I will go. I've never been on Lake Erie, but I, I will go. We haven't got time to talk about it, but Ohio also to me means Dean Martin, up there with one of my favourite singers of all time, and quite a character too. Um, I think this has helped bridge um, into something that we needed to ask you, obviously, and which our sponsors has asked us to... They've just sent in the question, what was it like being a young goalkeeper in the Tur- Turkish Super League? And I'm interested because... We can't spend, you know, you, you've achieved so much. And also, I want to go into depth about your position, your playing of that position, your psychology, that's coming. But when when you go to Galatasaray, there's so much background about where you've been. You've been, I hate to use the word, but you've used it before. And when you went to promo sport, you went, this is for the one time in my life where I'm not owned by somebody you, but your registration has been owned by clubs, but you were owned by Milan Mandaric, which is just extraordinary. You stuck, you stuck one of the. There wouldn't have been many people globally, globally in that year who struck a better deal than you did with Milan Mandaric, and to go to Galatasaray to see what you saw, to experience what you experienced, to learn. If I'm not wrong, to learn a bit of. You were reasonably comfortable in Turkish, at least at that time. And to culminate in the cup final, now I understand how a youngish Brad Fiedler will cope with all that. I, I love change in uh, in my sporting life and business life. And when I mean change, opportunities. I love seeing new things. You know, like to have stability for my children. But I like change and, you know, and, and even giving them things to see and opening their eyes. Uh, I had a terrible time of getting a work permit. You know, I kept having all these wonderful clubs and head coaches scout me and sign me, sign contracts, and have the permit denied. Um, Graham Sunis was one who tried to sign me when he was at Liverpool. It was at the time that we were about to try to go into contract, he went into the hospital, and then shortly after that, he um, he left his position um, at or was fired at Liverpool. Um, Roy Evans had uh, taken over and we had restarted the communication. Um, but at that time I had had to go and I'd signed for Newcastle and could get a work permit, went to Bronby for a short spell while I was trying to figure out things. And then Graham took the job at Galatasaray. And um, I knew Galatasaray by name, didn't, had never been to Turkey before. And I was training, I was in um, uh, Denmark training uh, with Viborg at the time just to stay fit because a friend of mine Mike Burns who was with the national team had just signed a contract there so once I was out there I got the call from Paul Stretford who was my agent at the time and he said uh, apparently, apparently as it turns out well the, the first goalkeeper Galatasaray broke his arm and but Graham wasn't really you know uh, he didn't really uh, like him all that much anyways and there was another goalkeeper who was a younger one, and the board kept telling him he was the guy, and he made a mistake in one of the preseason games, but I think against Besiktas or uh, Fenerbahce, but one of the big games, but before the season started, and he went, he went over to the post, and the post at the old Ali Samien were, were solid, and he headbutted it. 
he's like bleeding and and, he, and I mean I'm pretty sure that back then I mean there's no concussion tests or anything but he, he was more than likely concussed himself so Graham was like how can I have this guy and you can only have three foreigners you know and realistically if you go in as a foreign coach you don't yeah. want to spend one of your foreign spots on a goalkeeper if you can help it um, but he got in a position where yeah, um, Hakan Shuker, Dean Saunders was there. Um, Barry Venison was there at the time, but then Barry left shortly after Nuli Van Gogh came in. And we had like two guys, uh, Burak Elmas, Arif, um, Swat, uh, Little Okan, who played at, at uh, AC Milan uh, for, for a time. Like These were the national team players that were just qualifying for the, uh, the Euros for the first time. So we had a lot yeah. of really qu- top quality uh, Turkish national team players. So I was able to, I was, he was able to use one of the foreign spots on me. And, and we went in, we went in and, uh, we stayed, uh, like we were all living at the, uh, pullout Renaissance hotel when we first signed, uh, we first signed contracts. I came in, uh, shortly after Dean, uh, Graham and those, you know, I was probably a month later cause they had started the preseason. Um, and I didn't come in until, uh, after the, one game or two games into the season, and I, so I remember there's all this fanfare, and I, I didn't I didn't speak a word of Turkish, obviously at the time, but I, I mean right when I landed, um, and it was just me. I flew in from Denmark. Um, I have I have all you know all these bags, and I'm, I'm bringing in, and um, nobody told me at the time that that you, I needed uh, exact change for the visa to get into uh, to get into Turkey. And uh, I didn't even have a, uh, a mobile phone then. You know, this was this is going back then. So I, it wasn't like texts or anything. It's like if they sent the email, then and I got it before I had left. But then you know, and it was all that AOL. You know that you know you've got mail and all that. You know, back it was back during that time. Yeah. So I land and I have I have credit cards and I have a couple hundred dollar bills and I and I get there and no Turkish, only English. And I look and, and, and the other side of customs, it's glass. And I just see, well, okay, I'll exaggerate now. What seemed like, you know, 5,000 people, but, you know, a few hundred people, but like all lined up and with all these cameras and out there. And I didn't, you know, I, I was like, no, that's not for me. I mean, I haven't even signed, I haven't even signed my contract yet, you know? And so, and plus it was about one o'clock in the morning. It was one, it was a late flight. They would not let me in. And I was like, and and I, I went, no, no. And, and I had money, but I couldn't understand that they were saying, like, they were being kind. They were like, don't give me that because it's too much. And they were saying, like, do you have, they kept saying Arkadash, Arkadash, which is friend. And, and But I didn't know what it meant. And, and then finally, I see uh, Paul Stretford there at the window. He's looking at me like, you didn't bring any money? And I was like, no, no, I brought money. But, you know, anyway, so, so I get in. And right when I came through, Right when I came through, I, I mean, the paparazzi, it's just, and on you. And, you know, and from that point on, like somebody else had to get the bags and you're, you're you know, straight into a car and, you know, straight to the, uh, the pullout Renaissance Hotel where they wouldn't let anyone else in. And then you go into uh, uh, sign, your, sign your contract the next day in the, the media. I mean, it's just what, I, what was remarkable for me um, was... I knew Liverpool was a massive club because just because it was Liverpool and we went through the history of why I supported them. And I got by this time, I knew a lot about Liverpool and the history. You know, Man United's a big club. You hear that Galatasaray is a big club. You don't realize how big until you're there. And it is enormous. It doesn't have the... Uh, the quality of history of a Barcelona, of a Real Madrid, of the Man Uniteds, but it's got some deep history. It, it's life and death to the fans, isn't it? Life and death to the fans. It really is. Um, uh, you know, as a journalist over there, you'd find, I think what you'd find remarkable is that I used to ask why there's so many pictures. And they said, well, most, there's a, a vast majority of the population that won't be able to read if we write too much. So we try to fill the papers with as much with as much pictures of you guys wow. as possible, and they weren't like pictures of with us at a store. They were like on the training ground, open trainings most all the time. And if you didn't do that, um, you'd get to, you'd um, have some issues with the supporters clubs and things that things of that nature. Because so yeah, they did. They just lived. They lived it. But 
So I hadn't even signed the contract yet, and they're following me, trying to follow me in the hotel everywhere I went, and people are trying, you know, sneaking through security and trying to and trying to see what you're doing, even if you're just sitting by the pool, if you're going to the gym, if you, you know, and and in England um, and in Denmark, the two places I had been prior to that, people want to know who you are, but they will ask you for the odd photo, and they'll ask you for an autograph. Um, but unless you're the Beckham or the Ronaldo, like, you can live your life. There's a sense of respect about personal space, isn't there? Yeah, there, there really is. And, and I also think the, the education level of, and not school education, the football education of the supporters in England is enormous. I, I really do. I think they, they appreciate certain things. And one of the other things they appreciate is to, to allow you to go to Tesco and shop on your own. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. They, they, they'll they'll give you that. in Turkey, no way. Like if if you went if you went out of the house, expect to be mobbed, and not in a bad way. I, I really like the the people and the culture um, in in Turkey, but I, I think the the Turkish players, especially the ones that spoke a bit of English, very interested to hear what an American thought about Turkey. Really, do you like it here? Do you like it? What do you think? Is it okay? That was them wanting reinforcement because they're enormously proud of their country, their culture, their history. And curious what the rest of the world thought about them. You already knew a little bit about the Ottoman Empire. You, you'd as a smattering of knowledge of, of the country's background. Yeah, I did because I was a history major at, at UCLA and I had studied, um, I had studied that a bit. But there's a difference of um, studying in a book and meeting people. You know, so I, the my neighbor that lived upstairs... Um, you know, the first time uh, he they had um, they had two children, and the daughter. Remember when we first when we first met? You know, needed to be covered around me. And then after he got to know me, didn't. You know, and I, I found it. I just found it. I found it remarkable, but in a in a really good way. You know, take this this young kid out of Ohio. You know, who had had a lot of culture and sport, and some with Civil War history. Go out to L.A. into a melting pot of of everything and every and everybody and a huge Spanish speaking culture out in L.A. that I'd never been around. And then I'm getting touted to get over to England, which is very much more similar to Cleveland. If and and then I find myself in Turkey and never lived around you know, a Muslim, a Muslim culture in my life. And I guess the, the biggest thing I learned about it, Graham, was that we all live in our own propaganda. That's what I learned straight away. So I, I was basically, you know, taught growing up that the Russians were against us, Iran and Iraq was against us. And the truth of the matter is, the governments have issues. Individual people, I, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with anyone that's Russian. I never had a problem with anyone from Iran or Iraq. You know, that that's reality of the situation. So when when I was over in, um, you know, learning about Muslim cultures and the different factions and who is portrayed as good and bad, it, it, it was remarkable because it'd be like I'd then watch maybe CNN. It's completely different to what Al Jazeera, and I'm actually living where they're reporting on it. And I know that what Al Jazeera is saying is correct, and what CNN is saying is incorrect. You struck up a chord with me because, you know, without, we, we don't need to, we won't get massively involved in Muslim culture, but when you see something as simple as, there was a family upstairs, there was a young girl, initially when they didn't know me, she was covered. When they got to know me and trusted me, that wasn't an issue. She didn't have to. If you say that as simply as that, there's a reasonably strong degree of logic to that. That's that's fine as a concept. I remember going to, coincidentally, going to Qatar to interview Chavi um, and arriving at three in the morning, uh, taking a lot of time to get through the airport, getting to bed in the hotel, to be woken to the call to prayer, by the call to prayer, which I'd never heard 
in my life. I'd, even in London, I hadn't lived near enough a mosque, but the mosque was right next to my window, I think, to the extent you could open it and look out. And maybe it was five in the morning. I've just got to sleep. We've got work today. But you open the window and the mosque is so full that there are dozens and dozens of people kneeling down in prayer in the pavement outside. They're up at five in the morning. They must have been up at four to be there. That level of devotion, that level of sacrifice, you, if you don't at least want to understand it or if it doesn't generate respect in you immediately just for the basic act of how much they're putting into it, then I think you're a pretty shallow person. And But whatever conclusions you have to draw, you you don't even get these pictures in your mind until you move, until you look, until you're open enough to go, well, I'd like to know a little bit more. We had a training session um I, I can't remember why, but it, it either had to be pushed up or pushed back. And I remember Ahmed, the, one of the assistant coaches and translators, said, Graham, that's during prayer time. And Graham said, is, I know I'm not, I'm not doing it to be disrespectful. And uh, Ahmed said, well, you know, some of the players may need to go out of training at the time. You know, and, and Graham, very respectful, of course. You know, he, he, um, Graham is a very intelligent man. And he... he and right, you know, when the call to prayer was coming, I think eight or nine players went over and, and did, you know, and, and I, what I was curious about, and, uh, you know, I won't name names at the time because some people will know them, but I asked, I said, so, like, why would, why is that group praying and you're not? And that's where, you know, well, there's different levels of, of faith, you know, and they, and, you know, and I, oh, fantastic, you know, and all of it was learning when they, um, is it a sheep or a goat they sacrifice? I think it's a goat, by legend at least. I think it's a goat. It happened in front of me. It was uh, Boulant's the captain and then the goalkeeper. We were playing at Denizli Spor, I believe it was, and they did it. And, um, you know, and the, the Turkish players would dip down and, um, you know, dip their hand in the blood and put it either on their head, some of it on their boots and things like that. And it was... Uh, it was for luck. You wouldn't see that in the United States. The way I view all that is is, is how lucky am I to see it? I think it's very close-minded to be, what are you doing? You know, like, it's, it's, that's their culture. I tell you, the, what I, how I always viewed it, even when I went out to L.A., I view other people's states, other people's cities, other people's towns, other people's countries as for me to go and adapt to them, not the other way around. I think that's one of the reasons why I found it so uh, found my time in the UK so endearing with the fans of the clubs that I was at because I always tried to engulf myself in their culture and and try to and try to acclimatize as best I can. That's why I think the Galatasaray fans still today when I walk around places will remember me. And, and I mean, I'm 50 now. I mean, how can you remember me? I played there in 1996, I think it was. Football fans, once we once we fall in love, Brad, that's it, man. That's it. You know, that's the best. That's the best way to put it. And I, I think what somebody asked me a long time ago: Why do I think um, English players have a hard time going abroad? So I, you know, I think David Beckham was a tremendous success, but he's more of a global, more of a global pop star, if you, if you like. Um, and then with his, uh, you know, with he and Victoria, they were a different machine going. Uh, outside, um, Steve McMahon was a, uh, a friend of mine when he went to re- when he went to Spain. You know, it um, that took some adapting. It, it really it really did. I was surprised at how um, I was surprised in knowing Gareth Bale uh, as well as as well as I do. I was surprised. Uh, take the <laughs> take the language side out of it, but I was surprised that he liked Madrid so much. Not Real Madrid, of course. I mean, how can you not like the club? But um, I was surprised that when he went outside the UK, like that he would even consider settling there at some stage in his life. You know, that, that surprised me because the, the English players generally don't like going out and then adapting to somebody else's culture. We don't mind being challenged on the pitch. We don't mind being balled out by the, the coach. We don't mind if it becomes physical we don't mind being told you're not going to make it, but we, but not we. I, I, I cherish the fact that I've lived abroad, but many of them don't like being challenged 
culturally, they don't like being told you're going to go outside a certain comfort zone, which you talk, it's a theme that equates to the people you saw in the north who love to live in their little neighbourhood, their village, keep the routines, know this guy, know the family, down the pub. Why we're creatures of routine, why we're scared to be, uh, there's this perception amongst Brits that we'll be humiliated if we get a phrase wrong and we, oh, I don't like the taste of that. I, I don't understand it, but it's a real theme. Preseason uh, trip when I was with Blackburn to uh, we were Washington D.C. We're staying at the Ritz Carlton in Georgetown. Great training pitches, beautiful hotel. Wake up in the morning, um, we get down to breakfast, and then one of the uh, one of the lads says to me, um, "You know, Brad, can uh, can you see if they have any English breakfast tea?" And I look at him, and I went, "They do speak English here." He goes, "Yeah, but you're American. Can you see?" So. The fella's like standing right there. So it's like, I just shouted across the room. I was like, excuse me, do you have English breakfast tea? And they said, uh, no, we have Lipton, the American. And they actually said, oh, this place is shit. I'm like, we are at a Ritz Carlton in Georgetown in DC on preseason. You have a Premier League contract and you can't get English breakfast tea and this place is shit. Like I couldn't get my head around it. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.